Now, when we talk about the flood, we need to put the situation in context. It's only been about 1,656 years since the creation of the universe. That's, of course, approximate, but that kind of gives us an idea of how much time that has passed by. Now, it tells us in the scripture that there have been 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And, of course, uh, you really need to put that in perspective because many of the patriarchs lived to be over 900. Even Noah himself was 600 at the time that the flood came uh, upon the earth. And so there's a very, it's, it's very close, even though it's 10 generations, the time frame from the creation is very, very close. Not that, it's not as far as you, as you think because of the ages that these people lived. And so Noah had a very close connection with the uh, grandfather of us all, and that's Adam. It's possible that he knew Seth. And uh, it's possible that uh, he was born uh, during the final years of Seth. Now, when God created the universe, he created a perfect world. He created a world that was mature and full grown. Uh, when he created man, he gave him the ability to reproduce. He created man full grown the first day that he was born. How old was man the first day he was created? One hour after his creation. Well, he was one hour old. But how old did he appear? You see. Did he look like he's 30? Did he look like he's 20? Because he was created full grown, absolutely perfect in every way. Now, Primitive man. What does that make you think of? Primitive man. When you hear the term primitive man, most of us, if, if we haven't really thought about it, think of a caveman that can hardly walk and maybe uh, uh, some ape-like figures. But you see, we're talking about primitive man. This is the first man. This is the man, Adam. And the Bible says that he was created by God with perfect everything. He was perfect even in intelligence. His mind was perfect. He was created with much knowledge. Now how much knowledge God chose to put into Adam, I don't know, but I'm sure he had the ability to make a fire the first day he was created. He had the ability, the Bible says, to bring the animals, at least the domesticated animals, the animals that would be domesticated in the future, he had the ability to bring those animals into his presence. God caused them to come into his presence and he had the ability to name each one and then he not only could name them, but he could remember the names that he gave. Now some of you have told me your name and I can't remember it five minutes later. But Adam was able to name these creatures and then he was able to remember them. His intelligence, his intellect was perfect. And the technology and the information that man had in the beginning, we just don't know. It's been lost. It was lost in the flood. So God created a perfect world, a sinless world, a world where there was no death. But of course, Satan came on the scene and uh, it was not all that long, uh, probably less than 100 years. And Satan came on the scene and the Bible says that Satan deceived Eve and the man also partook of that forbidden fruit. And thus the fall entered the world. Sin entered the world. Now the Bible says that evil communications or uh, <clears throat> evil manner, uh, evil ways of life corrupt good morals. And so we have uh, this evil 
the sin that enters the world and it fills the whole world. In fact, just 10 generations. At the time of Noah's life, when he first evidently heard of the flood, he must have been about 480 years old. So by the time that Noah is 480 years old, he has no children, he has no family, and the Bible tells us that the earth had become very, very corrupt. In fact, it had become so corrupt that God decreed he's going to destroy it. Now, what we need to know or what we need to remember is that there have always been, there always will be until the end of time. In fact, that's what the parable of the terrorist teaches in Matthew chapter 13. It teaches us that there is going to be a, a, a group of good, there's going to be a group of evil all the way to the end of time. There'll never be a time when there aren't both groups represented. Now, obviously, the good are always uh, a minority as far as the number as far as the numbers are concerned. But there have always been men who were following God and men who were following after themselves. Now it's interesting when you read the first five chapters of the book of Genesis because it gives us a genealogy of the two lines, the descendants of uh, Adam through Seth and the descendants of Adam through Cain. But uh, it's always been intriguing to me because it only gives us seven generations from Cain. That is from Adam to Lamech, the genealogy ends. Now, the genealogy of Seth's descendants continues on. But there's probably a reason for that. You see, the, the book of Genesis, yes, it is a book of history. It gives us some history facts, but it was not written as a book of history. It was written to give us what we need to know about the scheme of redemption, to develop the theme of the Bible, which of course is the redemption of man. And so there are lots of things that are left out. There are lots of gaps, so to speak. Things that occurred or happened that we don't need to know about or we don't need to understand or we don't need uh, information about to develop the story that God intended. But now it's interesting because the seventh generation from Adam through Seth was extremely different than the seventh generation from Adam through Cain. Now, Enoch, of course, never died, but Lamech changed God's will. You know, sometimes people have the idea that polygamy was something that was always practiced. This is interesting. Here we have seven generation. It's nearing the time of the flood, so probably at least a thousand years, no man, as far as we know, has taken more than one wife. Now, why do you suppose that is the case? You see, the case is, the reason was, because God intended relationships to be monogamous. That's the way he started it. We don't have the detailed information about that, but that's the way God wanted it. That's the way God intended it. You know, we talk about David, we talk about Solomon, but when you read the words of Moses, you find out that even the king was forbidden in taking many wives. You see, they, they violated the Lord's plan when they took more than one wife. And the point is, God, under that old system, under those uh, times of the patriarchs and the, and the time of Moses, he tolerated or allowed some things that he didn't necessarily approve of. But now I want you to notice what happens here. The Bible says that Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. So he took for the first time a second wife. Now, look at what happens here. You have these two godly are these two human lines, these two human uh, genealogies. You have the sons of God 
who followed in the steps of Seth. You have the sons of men who followed in the steps of Cain. And you know, of course, that Cain was the one that rose up and killed his brother. Look at what it says here. And as, uh, Genesis 4 verse 26. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And the point is, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. In spite of that other line, in spite of that other godless line, there were men who were following the plan of God, who were walking according to the dictates of the Almighty. But the generation of Lamech ends with the seventh, and it says that Enoch walked with God. Now look at this. The reason... I don't know what happened. Some of the slides got deleted, it looks like. The reason that God destroyed the earth was because this godly line chose to marry the godless line. It was unscriptural marriage that caused the world to be destroyed. Now you think about that. Some people say, ah, it doesn't matter who you marry. It doesn't matter if you marry somebody in the church. I'm going to tell you something. Not everybody in the church is fit to be married. But if you go out there in the world and select, select you a spouse, you're asking for trouble. Now, if you've already done that, I'm not talking to you. You can't change what, what's in the past. In fact, after you've done an act, there's no way you can go back and undo it. But the point is, our young people need to think about this. Because this is what destroyed the world. Think about it. It destroyed the earth. Everything upon the earth was destroyed, man and beast, because of these unscriptural marriages. Well, God warns man that the day is coming when an end to all this is going to occur. God warned humankind that there's no longer going to be mercy or grace extended. In fact, Jude reveals to us in verse 7 that his grandfather, that the grandfather of Noah, preached about coming judgment, although that's not recorded in the book of Genesis. The scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, Noah being divinely warned, prepared an ark. Now Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God gave him the message. Now notice what happened here. We have the wrong idea about how God dealt with man and how God deals with man. He always dealt with man directly and indirectly. In other words, he never in any age dealt directly with every person. He always used a medium to deal with the general populace. Now we have religions today that say that you have to have a Holy Spirit experience. You've got to be dealt with directly to be saved. But when you read and study the Bible from the beginning to the end, he never dealt directly with every individual. In fact, he used mediums. Now the gospel or the truth that was proclaimed was always proclaimed first orally. That's exactly what Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 3 when he says, I received the gospel message that I delivered to you by revelation. Now, he delivered, delivered it to them orally. Now, he's writing to the Ephesians who were members of the church in the first century, the age that we know of as the miraculous age. And yet during the miraculous age, those at Ephesus could not receive the message of God directly. It was indirectly through a medium, and that was through Paul, the man. But of course, we know 
that this medium changed. First, the message was revealed orally, and that's the way it was all the way back to the beginning. And then, of course, it was written down. Paul said in Ephesians that he had written down, that he wrote in few words the message that he had received directly. And now, they, of course, through the written text, again, through the medium of God's word, received his message. Now, I want you to think about this. This is the way it works today. This is the way it worked during the time of the flood. This is the way it worked during the time of Moses. There was always a medium to the general populace. Only the selected few received it directly. And now Paul says, I received it directly, but your medium was me. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, he says that the Spirit revealed it to the apostles and the prophets. Now, in 2 Corinthians, or rather 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, I want you to understand something. I have begun to transfer this authority from myself and Apollos. Now, Paul was an apostle. Apollos was a prophet. He said, I've begun to transfer this authority from the man to the written page. And he says, I want you Corinthians to learn not to think above that which is written. This is in the first century. You see, it was already in the process of changing the oral message, of changing the direct message from the, from the man to the written text. Now, it's 2,000 years since the apostles lived. It's 2,000 years since this book was finished. And we no longer need God's message directly. But even when he did give a message directly, it was always through certain people. So we can't, we're not going to find Revelation today other than what's written. Well, during that time, the message was given to Noah. And Noah proclaimed the truth that the end was coming. Now, it's interesting. He began to build a boat. It really wasn't a boat. It was more like a barge. The Bible says, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, the spirits were in prison when Peter wrote this. But back yonder, when they were alive, they were not in Hades. They were not in prison awaiting judgment. They were alive and they had a choice of repentance. Jesus went and preached to those spirits while they were alive through Noah. He preached through the power of the Spirit of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He preached to them. Jesus preached to them through Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. God warned men. But men must act. God never demands or, or forces us to serve him. He doesn't want robots. He wants us to follow him because we love him. So men must act. Now what are they to do? What are men going to do? Well, there are two lines of people. And it's pretty obvious what those two lines are going to do. The people who have rejected God, the people who are following after the way of Cain, they're going to reject God. And at the end, there are those who are going to follow God. Now, it's interesting. I want you to take note of this. It could be that there were six billion people that lived on the face of the earth at this time. Did you hear that? Six billion. It can be shown mathematically that this was possible because of the age, 
and the length of childbearing uh, years that a man lived upon the earth and the multiplication. It can be shown that there might have been six billion people who lived on the earth. Now Noah preached to those people. But listen, sin is contagious. Sin is contagious. That's why we're supposed to discipline someone. That's why when there's immorality in a congregation, you can't allow it to go on. Because if you do, it'll leaven the whole lump. It'll affect everybody. And you see, it's really an extension of God's grace that he declared the world's going to end. It, there's a day coming when judgment's going to be here. And everybody's going to die. And actually, in reality, we've already read the verse. There were only eight souls out of maybe six million people that were faithful. The whole world would have been engulfed in sin and we would have been obliterated. But God in his mercy extended, extended that hope. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of whom all they chose. So you have two descendants, as I said, and they intermarry. This, the Bible says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. This caused such great evil that God decreed I'm going to destroy man, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry or I am grieved that I have made them. Man went to such a point, such a length, he departed so far from God that God says I'm going to call a halt to it. Now we may think, that he is going to let us get by. We may think that it will always be like it is now, but I'm going to tell you, God's only going to put up with us so long. He's only going to allow us to continue in sin so long. He's going to deal with us individually. He's going to deal, deal with us as a people. Someday, it's all going to stop. It's all going to end. Listen, he says it's over. He says, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. Now some people try to take that verse out of context and apply it in various ways. For example, some people say, well that was the short, that's why after the flood, their lives were shortened. That's interesting, because Noah himself lived to be over 900, and his sons lived to be over 600 or 800. And Jacob, who lived many generations later, lived to be nearly 200 years old. And yet it says here, 120 years. Well, the point is, God's declaring that I'm going to allow 120 more years to exist. That's what he's saying. Now, this is, this, this is pretty intriguing to me. You know, we talk about families. We talk about uh, raising our families. We talk about the, the terrible... Uh, a society we live in and the situation we have to raise our families in. Now I want you to think about this. Noah lives in a society before his children are born, you see. Because uh, God makes this declaration, as I already pointed out, when Noah is 480 years old and his first son was born when he was 500. So before Noah's first son was born, the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. Think about that. You know, my grandmother said a few years ago, she said, 
I'm so thankful, son, that I'm old because this world is so wicked. I wouldn't want to bring anybody into this world to live. Well, maybe she was right. But I want you to think about this. The world of Noah was so bad, out of all the multitudes of people that lived on the earth, only eight were faithful at the end. What an amazing idea. What, a, what an incredible thought. And before his firstborn son is chosen, or born rather, God says, I'm going to destroy the world. Well, his children are born, they marry, and they remain faithful to God. Now think about this. Noah went out to save his family, and he saved his world. Now you go study the life of Lot. The Bible says he made himself a judge in Sodom. The Bible says he sat at the gate, and that's where the judge sat. That's where court was held. The Bible says that he vexed his righteous soul from day to day. You see, we, we, we miss some of that story when we talk about Lot. We talk about him pitching his tent toward Sodom and so forth. But the Bible says he was a righteous man. God said that, not the preacher. God said that. And the Bible says he, wrecked, he, he vexed his righteous soul every day. The Bible says that Lot tried to change society. Now listen to this. He tried to change society by getting involved in politics. He tried to change society by becoming a part of society. That's what a lot of the religious world tells us we ought to do. Now think about this. Lot went out to save the world and he lost his family. He lost seven children, including his in-laws, his daughters-in-laws, and his wife, and really, his two sons. He lost them all. Lot went out to save his world, and he lost his family, and he lost the world. Noah went out to save his family. He not only saved his family, but he saved the world. That's a powerful, powerful statement. And all of us in this assembly need to think about that. That little girl right there is in your hands, brother. These children in this assembly, they're in our hands. The greatest blessing, the greatest hope we have for the future of the church is our children. Don't let the TV raise your kids. Don't let your life be consumed with other things. Don't badmouth the leadership. Show your children that there's, that there's wonderful beauty in living the Christian life. Show them that God is real in your life so that when you grow up, he'll be real in theirs. Be like Noah. Go out to save your family. No telling what benefit you'll be to the Lord. Well, so much could be said, but I've got to move along. God says it's gonna finish, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Notice now, 
Noah did not even deserve to be saved. The difference between Noah and the rest of the people is he had continued to reverence and respect God. The Bible says that he was just and perfect. That doesn't mean he was absolutely justice or absolutely just like Jesus. He was justified because he had continued to offer the animal sacrifice and recognized that God's word was true. He was perfect because he had offered the blood of innocent victims to roll his sins forward to the time that Jesus would come to this world because he had obeyed the voice of God. He did not deserve salvation. Listen, friends, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. The gift of salvation, the origin of salvation is free. But if we want to attain that salvation, if we want to enjoy that salvation, we have to pay for it. But whatever we pay is never enough. How can being baptized pay for the death of Jesus? How can eat, eating the Lord's Supper from one loaf and drinking from one cup, how can that earn salvation? That's a bunch of hogwash if we get to thinking like that. It's because of God's grace that we'll be saved based upon, of course, our obedience to his blessed will. By faith, Noah. You know, the word faith is not something better felt than told. Faith carries with it the idea of evidence. In fact, in the book of Romans that has often been called the book of faith or salvation by faith, Paul begins the book in chapter 1, verse 5, with an expression. He says, obedience of the faith. Isn't that interesting? Obedience of the faith. The book of faith says that faith always includes obedience. He ends the book of Romans in the last chapter, about the third verse from the end, with the same expression, the obedience of the faith. You see, faith is not something better felt than told. Faith is based upon evidence. Whether it's written or whether it's oral, whether it's uh, by listening to preaching, whether it's by reading the Bible, it's based upon evidence. Faith does not start before the evidence. It does not go beyond the evidence. And the Bible says by faith. You see, God had given him the evidence, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. He'd never seen it rain on the earth. It probably had not rained on the earth till this day, till that day. He didn't understand what it meant to rain. But God warned him that it was going to rain and that there was going to be a great flood. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of salvation. Now, grace mixed with faith followed by action. He was told to build an ark. Now, I want to say something here because the ark, it's difficult to know the exact dimensions of the ark. But what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to use 18 inches. Now, of course, a span is from the elbow to, to tall man here. Now, mine's 19 inches. I measured Terry's and uh, uh, Chris's, and theirs is 18 inches. I measured little Emma's. She's asleep. But I measured little Emma's. And hers was 12 inches. And so that's why it's not an exact science. It depended on who the standard was by which they measured a cubit. And uh, the ancient Babylonians uh, had a cubit that was maybe like 24 inches. So we've got a large 
difference here. From uh, 16 inches to about 24 inches, uh, it's possible. So there's a big difference here, but I'm going to use this uh, 18 about the middle because uh, that was the most uh, logical uh, length of the, of the cubit, and that'll help us understand how gigantic this box actually was. Now, if we use the smallest possible measurement of this giant barge, it would have been 437 feet long, 73 feet wide, and 44 feet tall. Now, it's interesting. You can see here this uh, 747 in proportion to the, to the barge. Gives you an idea. Now, these engines on here are big enough for a six-foot man to stand in them. That's how big that plane is. Here's one of the largest dinosaurs, and that's how big the boat is, or the, or the barge is, in proportion to that uh, dinosaur. Here's an elephant and a giraffe, and we've all seen elephants and giraffes, and there's the proportion of size, uh, scientifically, to the size of the boat. It's big. It's bigger than you can really imagine. It's a gigantic a barge. It's not designed to sail, it's designed to float. Now Noah, the Bible says, acted by faith. Uh, he was given specific instruction. Now it's interesting uh, when you read what scientists have to say about these instructions. They tell us that, uh, that the, the dimensions of the ark and the ratio to length, height, and width are the exact dimensions that are used in all of the large ships that are built in modern times. Henry Morris, a hydrologic engineer who graduate, graduated from Rice University in Houston, Texas, wrote this. It can be shown hydrodynamically. Now, this is a scientist. It can be shown hydrodynamically that a gigantic box of such dimensions would be exceedingly stable, almost impossible to capsize. It's designed to float, and it's built about the best you could possibly build as a man to float. In fact, he went on to say that if it tilted as much as 90 degrees, because of the design in proportions uh, to the length, width, and height, it would probably fall back down on its bottom. It wouldn't tip on over. And that's exactly what we need. Now, do you think that happened by accident? Of course not. God designed this so that men could live. Now, let's talk about the volume inside the boat. Now, you know, somebody like Bob or Terry or, or Doyle, who's, who's a salesman, might understand 1.4 million cubic feet. I don't know, but that don't mean much to me. So I, I, I studied that out a little bit more to try to figure out what that means. Now, that's the same capacity that 522 livestock cars hold. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Now, one rail car will hold 240 sheep. Now, even the largest mammals in infancy are about the size of a full-grown sheep. You know, I'm going to show you in a minute that there were dinosaurs on the boat. Had to be. Even the largest dinosaur in infancy was about the size of a sheep, a large, full-grown sheep. In fact, about 75% of the dinosaurs were the size of a chicken. We don't hear that, but that's the truth. Dinosaurs of modern origin, and it was, it's a word that came into vogue uh, long after the King James Bible was printed, and it just means terrible lizard. 
And so the word was not even used when the Bible was translated. Now, let's look at this. So we have the capacity to hold animals inside this boat, people, food, provisions, whatever's needed, 522 livestock cars, enough room to hold 125,000 sheep. Now somebody says, you mean to say that, that Noah had to get all the animals on the boat? That's not possible. Let's reason this out. Let's think about this. He was told to make an ark of gopher wood, one window, a cubit above, one door on the side there. He was to pitch it inside and outside with pitch. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark. Listen to what he says now. You and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also sevens, each of bird, birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. And for after seven more years, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, all living things that I had made. And Noah did according to all that God commanded him. Now here comes the roundup. Now, I have some uncles who, who are real cowboys. My Uncle Donnie lived in Nevada for a lot of years, and they used to rope mountain lions. Now, you can believe that. When we were kids, we went and they had a mountain lion that they had roped that one time we were there. They called Nosey because he had a nosebleed. They actually would rope mountain lions from a horse. Now, these, these animals weren't roped. God said, you get in the boat, you and your family, and these animals are going to come in. That's amazing. You know, what we don't realize is before the flood, there was a different relationship between men and animals. In fact, probably before the flood, there were no meat eaters. If you remember that it was after the flood that God gave the orders to now start using meat for food. Now, that's the opposite of evolution. But you see, the problem is most everything is the opposite of evolution. You can't put the evolution with the Bible. There's no way. It just can't be done. There's too many, there's too many uh, discrepancies. You know, they tell us that, that when you look at that star, that oftentimes that light is millions of years old, and the light you see is of a former star because the star is gone when you see the light. But in Genesis chapter 1 it says the light was here before the star. Because the Bible says on the first day of creation God created light and it was four days later when he created the stars. You see there are too many discrepancies between evolution and cre creation. Christianity. Evolution is a theory and it's based upon faith. <laughs> Depends on how you look at the evidence. We're not talking about evolution, we're talking about the Bible. And the Bible says that you get in the ark, Noah, and these animals are all gonna come. So one by one, pairs, two by two they came, marching and entering the ark. Two of every kind, seven pairs of the clean animals. Now, biological taxonomists tell us that there are 18,000 species in the world. Now we're talk, talking about Bible kinds now, and you need to realize that that's much more limiting than, you re than, than we often think. For example, the Chihuahua 
and the Great Dane came from the original dogs. We know, biological taxonomists tell us, that through breeding, they've developed these, the Chihuahua and the Great Dane, but they both came from the same original match in the beginning. Now, it's more difficult to take cats. It's more difficult to understand exactly how many cat species there would have been in the beginning. But the point is, the Bible says that God told him that there would be pairs of every Bible kind. So there would have been one male, one female dog that represented all the dogs of the future. Uh, scientists who are supposed to know said it was probably more like a wolf. I don't know. I don't really know that it really matters. But the point is, there are currently 18,000 species on the earth. Now, we know that there wouldn't be any sea creatures on the boat because they didn't need to be. They could have survived the flood. So there were mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians. And then, of course, uh, we need to think about the extinct animals, so let's double it again. So now we have 36,000 animals that we have to get on the boat. Now, again, uh, there was two of every kind, male and female, but then there were seven uh, uh, pairs of the clean animals. We don't know for sure uh, what animals were actually the clean animals. Now, you can, you, can, uh, you can make some educated guesses, but you really don't know for sure how many there were. So let's add 5,000 more to the number. So that would be 75,000. Now we have room for 125,280 full-grown sheep. Now you'll notice that there are many small creatures who are, that are much smaller than a sheep. Robins, lizards, mice, frogs, a few large animals, elephants and giraffes, dinosaurs. Now, I told you all ago I was going to show you there were dinosaurs on the boat. Now, Job lived about 400 years after the flood. And uh, God's talking to Job. Now, if you have a Bible with a margin and you look at behemoth that's in this context, it'll tell you an elephant or a hippo. But guess what? Did you ever see, did you ever see a tail on a hippo or an elephant that looked like a cedar tree? In fact, Many of the creation scientists believe that this is the, probably the dinosaur that this passage is talking about. But the word behemoth is from a Hebrew word that they didn't know how to translate. And that's why they just call it behemoth. Look at what it says. Look now at the behemoth. This is God talking to Job. Which I made long be, uh, along with you. Now, man says dinosaurs died before man. God says, I made the dinosaur with you. Look at now at the behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now, his strength is in his hips, and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. Now, it was natural for animals to migrate. Uh, you'll notice that these animals on this ramp are small animals. It would have been natural for these animals to be infants. Now weaned, of course, but they have to replenish the earth. And so the best, the cream of the crop, the best breeders God would have, had, would have sent to the ark. It's natural. It's been proven by these biological uh, uh, 
scientists that, that uh, all animals have the ability to migrate. And so God calls by a miracle all of these animals to migrate to the ark that were necessary to keep the species alive. So the animals on this bridge are infants. That's logical too. Can you imagine if you had a full-grown dinosaur on the boat and you had to clean up his uh, waist? You know, if you're driving along in Africa and you're not paying attention and you run over a, a pile of elephant dung, you're probably going to have a wreck. And an elephant's a lot smaller than a dinosaur. They got to be on this boat for a year. Now, there are two things about infants that uh, are going to be necessary to aid Noah and his family. They've got to take care of 75,000 animals. And if they're infants, they're going to sleep. Now, he has a, he has a, a storehouse of food. Probably what happens is he feeds the animals and it's dark and it's damp, it's raining. What do you do when it rains? You sleep. These animals were sleeping. They were hibernating. It's also been shown that most all animals have the ability to hibernate. And when that happens, their body processes slow way down and the waste is less and of course they do not need food during that time. So they had food when they went to bed, they had some food left when they got up, and they being infants would have been a much simpler, easier job. And so probably uh, all of these animals on the boat, none of them would have been larger than a full-grown sheep, even the largest of the animals. Well, Noah had to be willing to leave his former life. He'd never seen it rain, and yet God says it's gonna rain. Noah had to be willing to get inside that boat can you imagine the ridicule? We get ridiculed sometimes. Can you imagine telling people it's going to rain and they've never seen it rain? Would you believe it, uh, Doyle, if somebody told you it's going to rain in Bakersfield the 1st of August? Probably not. Of course, none of us had thought it rained much in June either. My place where I left yesterday had rained nearly an inch before I left. I don't remember it ever doing that. But they didn't see rain before, and now it's going to rain. He's going to get his family all inside that boat, this old gray-haired man that needs to be taken somewhere and locked up. He's got a problem. They probably call CPS. <laughs> the point is, he did what the Lord said, no matter what anybody said, no matter what anybody else did. He was willing to leave his former life. All in his nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. Noah passed through the door. Now it's interesting when you talk about this door. You remember I said he was to pitch it within and without with pitch. That is the ark was to have pitch on the outside and on the inside. Now there are two different words that are used for this word pitch found in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 6 and verse 14. The first time it means to cover. It's a verb. The second time it means a cover. So here you have this cover that covers the outside and keeps the pending waters of judgment away from the inside of the boat. You have the, the pitch on the inside too that continues to seal them. They had to pass through this pitch to get inside the boat. Now this is what's interesting. This word pitch in Genesis chapter 6 is later used and it's translated by these three words. And the lexicographer says that the word means the price of a life, a price 
for ransom of a life to atone for them. You know what that's talking about? That's talking about the blood of Jesus. <laughs> in order to be saved, in order to be protected, they had to get inside the boat. And when they did that, they passed through the pitch. Just like we have to pass through the blood of Jesus. The pitch is pointing no less to the blood of our Lord. Noah left his former life. Noah passed through the door. Uh, he was warned by God. He acted by faith. And all, of course, this alluding to our salvation in Christ. We hear the gospel. We believe that gospel. We repent of our sins. We acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We pass through the door. Jesus says, I am the door. We have to believe and acknowledge that he is the door. And, of course, when we do that, we pass through his blood because that would include even baptism. Notice what it says. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Noah was saved by water, so we are saved by water. The words that we read in the beginning. Isn't it amazing how this represented our salvation to this day at this very hour? They heard, they believed, they resolved, they repented, they confessed, and they were baptized. Now notice this, as the eight souls of the type were not saved before or after the flood, but while the water supported the ark, so salvation from sin is accomplished in baptism, not before or after the act. Notice that there was no infants on the boat. Noah's children had no, chi they had no children. He didn't have any grandchildren until after the flood. That does away with infant baptism. All were saved the same way. Look at the unity of this. Every person who was saved was saved the same way. All were members of the same family. Was that an accident? Think about it. All wore the same family name. Isn't that incredible? That's the way it is for us. Even today, in the New Testament church, we're all saved the same way. We all are members of the same family, and we all wear the same name, Christian. Isn't that incredible? Well, Noah's boat is a symbol of salvation. The waters of the flood lifted the boat to safety, and the waters of the flood caused the boat to, to float on, the, on, the, on the, the shoreless sea for over a year. And finally, those inside the boat were allowed to leave, and they walked out on dry land. Well, my friends, there's coming another flood, but this flood is not with water. It's going to be by fire. Are you ready for that day? <clears throat> Only those who are prepared here and now while we live on that day will hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.